0: And, hello everybody, <coughs> Okay, uh, my name is Michael, Hattins, and I'm from an organisation in Dallas called City and I'm going to take you through some of the stories of the last year we had in Dallas, where we've been trying to set up practice-based uh, urban agriculture. And at the heart of that is being a very long-term mapping project. Um, so, as, as an organisation, as, as a presentation for urban agriculture, the Refugees in Vickie which is our sort of target group of work at the moment approach mapping and how we've got on over the last year. Uh, for you, those of you who don't know really, very quickly, urban agriculture, growing food in cities. It's become, over the last sort of um, five or ten years, moving from a kind of niche subject. When I began about ten years ago, we were approaching people about urban the agriculture, people were crazy, and we kinda put the phones down yeah. on you. And now it's become far more of a mainstream conversation. And one of the things about it in terms of innovation is um, how it innovates space, it's scalable, it's adaptable. Uh, and it produces food, where well, we wouldn't think food would be produced. So it's a very innovative tool uh, within um, the issue of food security for cities, which again has been becoming quite a big issue uh, over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, again, um, I don't think people were talking about necessarily urban food security in the same way they are talking about it now. I think we're a lot, lot more aware of it. But also some of the uh, solutions. This is growing power in Chicago. For those of you who know Will Allen there, who sort of pioneered this fantastic growing project there and showed that... Um, so, Everton Food was very sustainable, engaged in the community, and very productive. This is actually his daughter who's taken on that, she's her definition of food security. Um, so, I'm like, one of our years ago, seven generations from now, that we're looking at food systems in the city. I don't know if it's a challenge for us, but I think it's probably where we've playing. Um, so, a little bit about us. Um, I'm going to have a, a take to very, very quickly. One of our mission statements is that in dozens of Dallas neighbourhoods, nutritional, nutritious and affordable food is simply unavailable. This is particularly true in low-income areas, uh, where seafood and fast food outlets dominate. Lack of transportation, which is a big issue in Dallas, if you, um, if you, if you go into the car, you can't be really go very far. Uh, limited grocery stores, uh, healthy food uh, may be overpriced. Uh, the consequences are documented, poor food, uh, poor health. Um, People in low-income communities suffer from high levels of obesity, diet-related diseases. Uh, it's an epidemic which limits productivity uh, and the ability to, gain, uh, to engage us with the life. Yeah, um, and this is particularly true of the city's refugee communities. Uh, Newly-arrived refugees struggle uh, struggled to gain food security uh, and suffer acute health problems associated with a rapid change in their diets. This is one of the things I found going to Dallas was, it's like I found you know, proportions. It's, uh, and the availability of food, it's really, really diverse availability of food compared to the UK. Uh, so sort of reflecting on how a refugee might feel would have been quite contained life for uh, maybe 10 15 years to come to that environment, um, I think it's quite overwhelming. And also that idea of wanting to fit in with with a culture, an organisation of, 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 of a diet as well, I think can be very, very overpowering. Um, so, um, it's this, the, the, a rapid change in their diets, uh, and current in, interventions such as SNAP, which is the food program in America, which is the, um, um, I forget what the SNAP stands for now, oh, supplements, nutritional, um, yes, thank you, um, people write upon government aid-based to fill the hunger gap. Uh, so, we feel that Food Break, um, primary production within Dallas, offers one of those solutions in terms of food security, and it's and um, something that um, we feel um, offers la- uh, livelihoods, pote- economic potential for refugees, draws upon their own knowledge base as well, a lot of them come from agricultural situations, uh, and also will give them access to professional food. So, why work matters? Uh, access to affordable food, too much rely upon the, um, the SNAP programme, and the difficulties of the refugee communities. So, grown food, I don't know it's actually moved on before. So what we're aiming to do is develop, support and create and pilot innovative urban agriculture projects within Dallas. That particular target area, as I've spoken about, is Victory Meadow. Um, Texas takes more refugees than any other state in America, so a high proportion of refugees are coming in here. And one of the preferred resettlement spaces is within Victory Meadows. Um, we talked about super diversity within Super diverse area, uh, 40 different countries, 27 languages, 49% foreign born. Again, that's a real difficulty for us working in that area because I time not speak English. So it's a very slow process in terms of community engagement. Um, three, three and four refugees from uh, the SNAP. Eight um, as well. Um, but SNAP is funded through Department of Agriculture. So in a sense, it's an agricultural subsidy that these refugees are getting. So I think that, again, ties it up with the idea that urban agriculture is probably a good solution for this, given we're already talking about uh, uh, subsidising agriculture. One thing that's interesting, actually, research shows that in the SNAP program, it's not just food stamps to buy food and salt. you can buy seeds and plants. It was a variation they put into the SNAP project, um, but most people are unaware that you can go to primary production with, with, with the small amount of money that you get. It's uh, so just an example of the, um, some of the communities over in Victor Meadow. It's about 1,000, 1,100 acres, uh, Victor Meadow itself. Um, one of the things, in terms of urban agriculture, is very, very important that you have to find space practice has to happen somewhere. So we have parallel streams within within, within our work. One is a spatial one, which I'm going to take you through now. Another one is a community one, where we're looking to engage in community. And it's about bringing that sort of top-down view, where we're creating maps, bespoke maps for urban agriculture, with a bottom-up engagement with communities, looking at what their resources are within every, everyday life, and how they might be able to then become independent in uh, practice. Um, these are the three areas within the committee that we surveyed. Um, and as you can see from these kind of pictures, there's lots and lots and lots of open space in Dallas, a huge amount of open space now. This is an aerial view of a section of the Big and the purpose of showing you this is, when you look for existing digital data on maps, you get this, which is basically roads and houses. It doesn't show anything else. So in terms of wanting to look for the space that, where food could potentially be grown, you have to take your, your time, basically an inverse version of this map. What happens if you space between the concrete and between the building? That's where your, that's where the urban agriculture is always going to happen. So we spent a great deal of time walking around and drawing in all of the green areas that we could see, um, and then from here, yeah, there's, there's all the houses and roads and you, you end up with this basically, which is like the sort of cookie cutter, if you know what I mean. When you kind of made, you roll out the dough and you made the cakes. And what are you left with after that, really? And once we've got this, this is just, this is a residential area, so it's mostly grass you can see here, but it doesn't appear on any kind of map. When we've taken into account, these lines where people walk, um, topology where it falls down, maybe where there's, there's trash cans or where there's parking now, or where there's variations from the digital map as well. So this is a reasonably accurate map of the green areas that are available. And when we put it into a GIS database, this is another area, I didn't have a, um, a table, front. this is another area. You can start to come out with um, um, measurements for space. Um, and then from there, you can start to calculate how much food would potentially be grown in that area. At the moment, this is just a kind of theoretical model for, for growing food. But it's a very important one when we move on to putting in dollars. When you start to work out how much, or what's the dollar value of that practice within space. And you start to give an economic value to what is actually essentially empty space. It doesn't appear on any maps. Doesn't appear on any databases anywhere. Um, and you find huge amounts of space, absolutely huge amounts of space, uh, within within within. Uh, if it's a bad one thousand one hundred acres, um, you can find say two hundred acres of empty space within Member, but it doesn't appear on any map at all. So this is our there. So from from all the mapping that we did over about six months' period, we created a theoretical model for practice. Within Um this was a, a large area of empty space at the top of there, nearly 100 acres of, of empty land. Um, for those of you who know, uh, I don't think it's common to all American cities. American, are not you? But they, you have to demolish a property to, in order to sell the, the, the plot. So you don't have to pay tax on the, on the building that's standing. So you kind of clear the building. So up here they clear the buildings, and 100 acres of completely empty space. Um, down here, it's a lot more uh, of a diverse area. Um, some empty shopping blocks, um, uh, some empty car parks, um, some grass verges, some closed roads. Um, so a market garden area, would very suitable here. And here is purely residential where we feel that community growing would be a very useful thing for us to pursue. So we, we've managed to develop different models for different spaces through the mapping practice. So the next stage for us, it was a kind of parallel stage really, was to meet with the community. and uh, Was to take out Uh, was to go out and to meet the community. Uh, This is uh, a Burmese um, uh, garden uh, on the corner of Rikki Meadow. And talk to them about their skills and where they're coming from. I think, I feel one of the issues with urban agriculture, particularly with refugee communities, is the assumption they want to grow food. And this conflict between the Americanisation, the fact that they actually want jobs, they want commerce, and the fact that we're saying to them, grow your own food. Urban agriculture has a history of crisis. People tend to come to food at the point of Easter in crisis. Uh, and as a, a, a secondary location, these are people perhaps trying to move out of a crisis situation it's a more normal situation. Um, the uh, cha- particular charity on this day phoned two people. Having said that, we phoned two people. And 35 people turned up at the meeting because the word spread that Citizen D was able to provide community food growing within Victor Meadow. So we sensed there was a, quite a lot of. Um, of equal participant. but it also warned us that um, of that communication process that we have to be involved in with the community. where we raise expectations too quickly, um, and then there was a lot of disappointment when we were trying to explain to them through an interpreter that we weren't offering them space, that we were still going through this process of finding space and negotiating access to space, um, and, um, and that was quite a difficult day for me. It was a very difficult day. Um, the other thing we did in terms of uh, meeting communities, we found a, a disused shop, which was in the middle of Dickery Meadow, and we cleaned it up, and we built a raised bed in the back, and we just hung out for a week, and we just invited community to come and meet us and for us to talk uh, about what we were doing. And that was a really valuable way for us to engage in community beyond the sort of sitting there with computers and just mapping and creating um, tables of data. Uh, and people just rolled in and talked to us, and that was great, it was really good. Uh, and as a consequence, the landlord gave us the, the back row. This is almost too small a space to map, in a way. You couldn't get a pixel line that thin on it to, 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 to mark the space. But it grew huge amounts of attention, this back row along the houses there. Uh, and the next stage now is we're cleaning up a whole lot of it and putting raised beds all down the back there. And the community has started to use this space as well. So it's kind of us trying to, trying to bring innovation into the community um, through just that, just being present in the community. In, in, a, in a gentle way, really. Um, and the other thing that we've done is, which is actually quite hard to do in Dallas, is spend a long time um, walking around. Just walking around. And just seeing what, ha- what people are doing in their everyday life. This is an example of one housing state where you can see people growing pumpkins and they're growing uh, herbs and cellar greens. And noticing that the landlord themselves weren't removing those plants. This happened in a lot of parts. This happens quite a lot in the UK as well, actually in London. This is actually quite prevalent in the Bengali community. In mean, East London, for example, you see this. And this shows, a, that people there who were interested in growing food as a community, but also the landlords who were sympathetic to growing. And that gave us a, a, an inroad into um, um, creating a dialogue between the community and, um, and the landowner. One of the issues that, that we faced, and got feedback from this, is that landlords are assuming some kind of left we want to do in terms of getting to grow food. So the usefulness of the more strategic kind of gis databases is is to show that we're kind of thinking in a kind of strategic way about this. And they kind of listen to that a lot more. So the maps are very, very useful for us to win that kind of serious argument with landowners as well. But at the same time, trying to understand how community might want to be involved in this project as well. Um, And one of the other ways of doing it, this is something which I've been involved with uh, for about five years now. Um, and it's, I've got some maps people want to, which is just to create a map of a selected area uh, within, within um, a city. Um, and I take people on walks with the map. Um, I've been doing it in five UK locations. And you spend about two weeks with people and you just walk with them around the neighbourhood. And this map is, it's a fictional map in which food can be grown on every single square kind of inch of useful space. And it acts as a provocation to people. It's an invitation to use their imagination. And it's great for communities who have become spatially, gl- spatially blind. Uh, communities, uh, residents who are very used to their own environment. And they don't really see the space that's out there. And I'm amazed when I take people on walks. I knew this. to maps where they say, I've never been here. And it's a very, very slight detour from their normal walking route. And one example that I had in London, there was a tennis court. In there. And it closed down very quickly, about 30 years ago. And residents walked past it every day, and they had never seen that the tennis court was there, and just had a fence against it. And through the use of these kind of things, you can very, you can take them on different routes around their own neighbourhood. And I was thinking about whether refugees, in a sense, are very new to these environments, and whether they see things spatially very differently than residents actually do, whether they would be more uh, prone to taking detours or not. Um, I've got some copies if people want to take them away. But the map is also quite useful, I think, for engaging with City Hall, which I think is our next stage that we need to do to take some ideas to City Hall. Um, and so we began, as a central part of, um, of, of Dallas, it's a six-second site, uh, and we began creating visions for this, for the city, um, and suggesting to them that um, it can be very, very productive, or it can have a more playful tone to it there within the, football ground, uh, within the same site here as well. Um, I think the thing is that there is no one map. People do need different maps to talk to to, to do different things really. And so some of the community engagement is really with these kind of maps, and some of the GIS map is great for the City Hall. But eventually people need to kind of see something in some ways as well. So creating different maps. Um, and so where we've got to at the moment, we've done the kind of spatial stuff. we are progressing really, really well with that. Um, we're starting to engage with people and we've managed to identify a kind of words for that space uh, in terms of uh, the potential dollar value uh, it, um, for urban and its possible outputs. Um, and I shall leave you, we had a very, um, Joanna Pinio, who's a natural photographer, came to Dallas. And part of the other engagement we've done there is just to document that was happening in Victory Meadow. Because I think one of the things that happens is people don't really understand that something is just around the corner for them. We've made two films uh, about projects in Dallas. And documented the life of, the, of people who have grown through And I think that starts, again, to give a kind of voice um, to, to practice, which is often just hidden within community. Um, that's it. Thanks, much.